Very welcome to Re-Evolve, our weekly webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm happy to have with me Thomas Björkman from Sweden. Thomas, welcome to Re-Evolve. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your radio. Thomas, uh, there's so many things you do. You're head of the Eckert Foundation in Sweden, but maybe you want to say some words about what you do and what motivates you, what you're doing? Yeah, I, uh, I can do that. Um, uh, I'm Swedish but I haven't lived in Sweden since um, 25 years. Uh, spent a lot of time in Switzerland and in, in London. Uh, I used to be a serial entrepreneur, uh, a banker and a property developer, but um, I sold my business uh, a little bit more than 10 years ago. And then I decided to set up my own foundation uh, in Stockholm, the Air Credit Foundation that you mentioned, the Oak Island Foundation to explore the relationship between our inner personal development and lifelong growth and societal change. And after that, it, I've set up a few other uh, organizations um, like the Perspectiva, small research institute in London, to, together with Jonathan Rausen, the Emerge uh, media platform in Berlin, the co-creation Loft in Berlin, the 29K digital platform for personal growth and development in, in, in Sweden, to, to mention the, a few. And I've written three books, The Market Myth, The Nordic Secret, together with Lena Anderson, and uh, The World We Create. Yeah, and exactly, The World We Create uh, just came out also in German language in the Phenomen Verlag, yeah. Die Welt, die wir erschaffen. And that's the reason why we invited you again, because the last time we talked was about The Nordic Secret, which yeah. in the meantime, that was also not the case when we talked last time, also came out in German one year ago, also from the Phenomen Verlag in German called the Skandinavische Geheimnis. Yeah. But this time we talk about uh, the world we create, which is, if I would say, your introduction also in the foundations of metamodern thinking. Would you agree with that? Yes, um, um, uh, yes, you could say so. It, it, it's leading up uh, in that uh, direction. Uh, uh, it's really a, a big take on where we as humanity uh, uh, are uh, in the present uh, global situation and how we came to come into this uh, position and possible uh, ways out of uh, our predicament. And there, uh, of course... Uh, one possible way out is, is what uh, more and more uh, people right now are starting to refer as, uh, as a, a, a metamodern society, which you could say is the constructive uh, continuation of the cultural evolution from a pre-modern society to a modern society and the post-modern critique of the modern society. But uh, I think more and more people are agreeing that the post-modern critique is very relevant for understanding modernity and our, our human situation right now, but it is not enough to critique modernity. We need to move on beyond the critique and try to co-construct a, a new uh, era after modernity. And that project we could name the metamodern project. One of the many dimensions that, that you touch in your book there is one uh, through line that I find very interesting because just very telling. 
you, you talk about social imaginary and you talk how different cultures, how different societies, you just mentioned pre-modern, modern, post-modern, have in their foundation social imaginary. And that's maybe a term to talk about yeah. because uh, it needs some explanation what we talk about. It's not just the kind of ideas that we have. It's a foundation how we start to not only think uh, about the society and the culture that we live in, but how we experience it. So what is it as a social imaginary and through what kind of social imaginary did we go through in the story of our human civilization? Yes, you are right. The, the, uh, the book, we, The World We Create, is very much around uh, understanding this unique human capacity that we have to be able to construct societies, to construct culture, and even the deeper layers of culture, which we might call uh, the social imaginary. So um, um, generally, the, the book is really about going deep and, and having to think deeper around a lot of uh, uh, human aspects. You could say that in times between these deep societal transitions that we have been going through in humanity many times, perhaps the last time we went through a deep societal transition was during the Enlightenment, when, just as you mentioned, we went from the pre-modern to the modern society. And I believe that we are right now in an equally deep, perhaps even deeper societal transition. And while we are within a civilization or within the paradigm or between these transitions, then you might not need to look as deep into reality as we need to do in one of these transitions. So the book is very much about looking into deep history. And the first uh, third of the book is really a deep history survey going back to the Big Bang up till today, showing that in many respects, it's the same forces that has been working in the universe during the evolution of life, during the evolution of, of society, the evolution of culture. So in these times, we need to look into deep history. We also need to look into deep psychology. And that's why I think, for example, Jungian psychology and psychology around archetypes and, and the shadow is becoming more and more um, interesting to, to look into. So we need to look deep into our psych psychology to understand what's going on. But then to come to your question about uh, the social imaginary, then it's the same when it comes to sociology. When society is in these deep transitions, it's not just enough to look at the surface of society. It's not just enough to go deep into culture. You, you really need to go, or into ideology. You need to go into those layers in our socially constructed symbolic world that is the fundament of ideologies and cultures. And those very, very deep foundations in society, sociologists give names like our uh, social imaginary or our collective imaginary. When we talk uh, social imaginary, collective imaginary, uh, it obviously is connected to images, to, uh, to, to kind of... Uh, uh, the, 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 the way we perceive uh, reality in, in, in symbols, in myths, in imaginary, uh, 
what kind of social code are we talking about here? Could you give some examples to, to, to bring it to life, what, what this imaginary is about and what it used to be about? Yeah. So, so first of all, what, what is this and why is it important? Well, it, it's important because uh, social imaginaries, just like culture and, and symbolic language, uh, is unique to humanity. Mm-hmm. And um, in, in the evolution of, of our world, we first had the physical evolution of particles and atoms and chemistry and then into biology. And then we had the evolution of life and that speeded up the pace of, of evolution many hundred times compared to uh, the physical evolution. But then when, when we as humans started to be able to construct culture and the symbolic world, that speeded up evolution even more. So the evolution that is actually affecting us the most right now is, of course, the evolution of our symbolic universe. Mm. And how does this work? And why is it called collective imaginary? Well, we humans, we we have the possibility to come up with concepts and ideas. But for these concepts and ideas, not just to remain something within my own mind and in my own fantasy, I need to somehow represent them in language or with symbols. And then I put them out into our common world, into our intersubjective world. And we start to develop a language and a symbolic language where we can represent things, not only physical things like a, a stone or a lion or a river, that's fairly easy to represent. And even some animals have got um, sounds that can represent different types of dangers. What is unique for humanity is that we can have completely new ideas that do not have any physical representation out there and still come up with concepts around them such as, for example, the idea of of justice. Uh, Justice does not exist out there. Uh, Justice is an idea that we have come up with, but that we somehow share. And our understanding of justice is, per definition, a shared understanding. And that is why it is collective. So in that way, we as humanity have come up with a lot of concepts that originally only existed in our individual imagination, but has somehow come to take on a life of their own out in our collective space. What would be the difference in a social imaginary of a pre-modern culture and a modern culture? What's the different symbolic world that we are living in? So so I can, uh, this was all very, very uh, abstract, but now I think we understand the, the origin of, of mm-hmm. this and that this is completely unique human. But what could this be today? Well, t- today, parts of our social imaginary could be, if we're talking about a little bit more shallow level, which is more easy to understand, it could be things like um, uh, nation states, could be things like precedence, could be things like marriage, could be things like money or the market. Th- th- these are things that do not have any 
absolute representations in the outside world. We've come up with the idea of the nation state. We came up with the idea of the border. We invented the concept of, of marriage or the concept of a, of a president or even the concept of money. And the only reason why, why these concepts have a value is that we all together collectively believe in them. And it's perhaps the most simple way of understanding this is to look at money. And I'm, mm. I might take this example comparing money with oxygen or air and say something like, for me living in modernity, as an individual in modernity, to me, money might seem equally important as oxygen or my access to clean air for me having a possibility to live in this world. To live in, the mod in modernity, I need access to air and to money. But of course, even if the whole of humanity came together and decided that we as humanity do not want to be dependent on air any longer, we couldn't do anything about that. Whereas if the whole of humanity or even just a majority in a nation state would come together and say, we don't want to be dependent on money uh, as a mechanism for allocating goods and services. We would want to come up with something new. Of course, then money could be gone, gone tomorrow. Um, but for me as an individual, but that had to be a collective decision. Mm -hmm. For me as an individual, the fact that I realized that, that money is just some sort of collective idea or collective fantasy doesn't help me when I'm in the supermarket mm -hmm. and with a cashier. And the cashier says, we want to have 100 euros. Mm -hmm. And I tell the cashier, well, you see, money is just a, a collective fantasy. I mean, it doesn't exist. That won't help me. Then the police will come. So society is also, through its institutions, in the, enforcing a particular type of collective imaginary. Still, you make here this, a really decisive distinction that I, I, I want to kind of repeat again. Basically, uh, comparing money with air. Uh, air has independent existence if we want it or not. Money has an independent existence to myself as an individual, but we as a culture, as a society, we created it. Yeah. It means the fact that we created money means also that we can if we come together as a society, as a culture, not as an individual, make different choices. Yeah, we can recreate it. We can recreate it. We, we, have, we have the power as creators. And, and that's, of course, the title of yeah. my book, The World We Create, yeah. an emphasis on the collective we. And you make this uh, very clear that we created, in course of our history, a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, the God-given right of the king to rule is something that we came about when we shifted from indigenous societies to more kind of monarchic societies. There was a construction that we created. Yeah. The, uh, that science is the uh, only pathway to truth uh, is a story that we created. It has yeah. some legitimacy in itself, but in itself it's also a story that we created. Mm -hmm. And with, uh, as you also put in the book, in, in post-modernity, with criticizing modernity and also criticizing uh, scientism, uh, we came to about, no, there's not only one story, there are many stories, there are as many stories as we want. So we came up with, so to say, a new story that there is no big story. And this is the story of post-modernity. But these are all kind of uh, 
stories, narratives, meta-narratives, social imaginaries that we as a culture, not as individuals, but together somehow in the way we really started to create. And the point that you seem to make is to realize, hey, people, wake up, we are doing this. So if we are aware that we are doing this, we also can do this in a more conscious way yeah. and, make, and start basically thinking about what do we want to create here? Is that the point? No, no, absolutely. And, and the realization that we have created all these um, social imaginaries throughout history, mostly in an, in an un unconscious and random way. So mm -hmm. we tried a lot of different ideas and, and some actually functioned and stuck. I mean, one of those ideas might be uh, the idea of the Ten Commandments. That, 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 that was an idea that came up 2,500 or 3,000 uh, years ago. And for some reason, it, it stuck because it, it was in that environment and perhaps still today uh, efficient. So even though these uh, social imaginaries might have been very randomly created for them to take on, they need to somehow provide value to society. So if we look at the um, uh, pre-modern social imaginary, you already mentioned the divine rights of kings. Uh, and another uh, might be uh, the, the mon uh, monotheistic religions that we believed in. Both these, I would claim, had enormous value for these societies. The divine rights of kings created cohesion. Uh, and uh, uh, the monotheistic religions made it possible, perhaps for the first time in human history, to bring together large amounts of, of, uh, of people in first great cities and then later even uh, civilizations of, of a million people. People who in a pre-modern -pre society, in a tribal society, um, might just have started to kill each other under those uh, mm -hmm. circumstances, now respected each other because they were under the same god and perhaps also under the same uh, ruler. So these collective imaginaries were efficient and added value to humanity. But then somehow through the evolution of, of mainly technology, and there were many reasons for us leaving the pre-modern world going into modernity, but of course the invention of the printing press and, and other related uh, technological developments played an important role. And then this old imaginary sort of did not suffice any longer. You, you need to come up with something bigger and, and better. Uh, and then of course that, that was modernity. And, and we got, as you mentioned, the story about science and the story about democracy and the story about nation states, and not the least the story about the independent um, uh, individual and how we as individuals are here to maximize our own uh, utility. And the story mm -hmm. about the invisible hand. So if we are all maximizing our individual utility, we believe that the invisible hand will take care of, of, uh, the, of the rest. Uh, and these stories, again, were very... Uh, efficient and were probably the, the sort of imaginary that humanity needed back then. And part of these, uh, uh, this collective imaginary, like, for example, the idea about 
uh, human rights and, and similar things, I hope will be around for a long, long time because they, that really makes uh, sense. But whereas other uh, parts of that uh, collective imaginary, perhaps uh, uh, nation states, and perhaps as you also mentioned, uh, the total dominance of uh, uh, rationality as the only way to understand the world, that might be things that are challenged right now. Because that, that's uh, what I find intriguing in your insights. Uh, first, uh, that we have this imaginary. Uh, second, that, that they're created. And uh, here particular, uh, uh, that science is created uh, is even now not a given insight because it, it is a possible an insight, but it's still kind of... No, no, sci no, but, but I, th no, I, I think that... I mean, any serious philosopher of science, and even I would say any serious scientist who is actually doing science, uh -huh. know that what we call science today is, is very much, first of all, dependent on which discipline, academic discipline we are talking about. But even if we're talking about national, natural science like physics, uh, it is a very strong methodology to try to get to better and better concepts of, of truth. But I think everyone th that is doing science realizes that um, the methodology is very strong, but, but it is a human invention. And, and there are even discussions, of course, within the scientific community on how to make this even stronger, because more and more people are starting to realize, just to take an example, that, that as science becomes more and more advanced, uh, the various areas of science become more and more narrow. And mm -hmm. when you publish in two narrow peer-reviewed journals, then you might just be publishing for your own filter bubble. Mm -hmm. and, that, and then this whole bubble can, can go wrong. Mm -hmm. So uh, even this peer-reviewed research uh, <laughs> methodology that was... Yeah. very, very strong 100 years ago, might even need to be reviewed yeah. right now because uh, of yeah. the way science is evolving. But, and as you describe in your book, there has been a serious transition, let's say in the last 30, 50 years, where this whole mega story about science and progress got attacked by uh, a new story that there is there is no... A big narrative. There is no even scientific truth. Everything is relative. That's in many ways, and you could say that Nietzsche started it already yeah, uh, yeah. more than 100 years ago, but it really uh, took roots only in the, in the 50s, 60s as, as a culture. And, and all many modern, uh, particular continental French philosophers uh, foundational for that. Hmm. And what what you are saying, uh, because that's new to me uh, in the way in, in, in the precision you described, when you make this claim uh, that science doesn't hold as an absolute truth, it holds as a narrative, a very useful and very powerful narrative, not not just a, a, some narrative. Uh, and also in specific investigations. I yes, mean, in investigations. In specific areas, science is super strong, whereas in other areas, of course, science has very little to say. But uh, uh, when you do that, as we did, as a, uh, not only the scientists, but as a society, what remains is the market. 
And this explains a lot about postmodernity in a way we don't we usually don't look about postmodernity. We look about many ways what postmodernity is as narcissism and multi-perspectivity and relativism. But you say when we do this, what remains as the really myth that holds us together mm-hmm. is the big market. Mm-hmm. That's an, uh, that's something that, that really says a lot about our society culture right now, and maybe also, and that seems to where you're going. Uh, the world that you're hitting in that may, this this myth doesn't hold either. No, no. Uh, so, so um, and, and again, I, I should say, just like uh, deep psychology is, is coming coming back in 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 fashion, and many people are starting to read Jung, which and he was of course writing more than fifty years ago. The same is with the collective imaginary and deep sociology. I mean, this thinking has been around for for 30, 40, 50 years. Um, One of the foundational works in this area was the the work by Berge Luckmann, and I think it was published in 67, uh, The Social Construction of of Reality. So this thinking has been around for a long time, but again, in fairly stable times, it doesn't add that much. Of course, you can use this in philosophical discussions, but in in practice, it isn't that important. But now when we are in these transitions and everything seems to be up for grabs, then it becomes important to look again deep down into these uh, uh, understandings of society. And I want that to come to exactly what you pointed out there about the, the market to say that our human ability to create these socially constructed cultures and and worlds is such a strong and powerful tool and has helped humanity to be able to live in many parts of the world and adapt to very different conditions. And for us today to, to, or at least so far, we have been able to adapt to the technological development. So it's a very powerful tool, but as it is so flexible, we need somehow a mechanism in any society, and this is a, an insight from, for example, Berger Luckmann again, that you, you need, we need as humanity, some way to anchor the social reality, to, mm-hmm. to give it a fixed point for us, not just com- to completely live in, in, a, in a liquid world, which, which wouldn't be helpful. So in any society, in any socially constructed world, in, in any collective imaginary, we need to have something that Berger Luckmann is calling an ultimate authority, mm-hmm. the, the final rock where we, are, where we are putting this on solid grounds. And in the pre-modern society, in the religious worldview, th- that uh, ultimate authority was God. You could always at the end refer to this is God's will or this is God's word or the, the king is reigning with absolute authority from God. That's where the questions stop. Um, some sociologists also call this ultimate authority our, our sacred canopy that is sort of holding our society. And again, it's sacred because we cannot really criticize it, because to criticize this, we need another fixed point to criticize it from. And another way to call this this, um, sacred canopy would be to use the the word that you just used earlier, and is to talk about our outmost meta-narrative. 
It's the meta-narrative of God in pre-modern. So then when we go from the pre-modern world into modernity and into a rationalistic way of understanding the world, then science starts to take the role that God had before. So science becomes the ultimate authority. And we try to, to rely on science more and more. And we, as this is the, the best tool we have to find truth, we start using science even beyond its real useful field. And we use science to come up with answers for questions where science is not really suited for that. And that's where we have the postmodern critique of science and, and of meta-narratives generally. And the postmodern philosopher says that, no, God is not an ultimate authority. God is a narrative. Uh, science is not an ultimate authority. Science is a methodology. Science is a narrative. Okay. The unfortunate effect of that is that then the conclusion that many, not, not all, but many postmodern thinkers then come to is to say something like, well, all the narratives are just human constructs. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they are worthless. And if they are all worthless, we can just choose anyone on random, whatever you want to believe in. And of course, then you enter into a very relativistic world and you have no fixed point in your socially constructed world, but we need a fixed point. So what is happening now, today, when the postmodern thinking is, is criticizing any fixed point, is that the market has sort of usurped the function of ultimate authority. Even if the postmodern philosophers are very critical towards the market, they don't, they don't want to have anything to do with the market. As a matter of fact, the market has become our new uh, ultimate authority. So if you ask a question like, um, why is the banker living in a mansion and, and the nurse living in a cheap flat? Is there any justice to that? Well, justice, this is the decision of the market. The market decides. Okay, so what should we produce in, in culture? Should we produce more, more, more uh, Shakespeare and theater or pornography? Well, let the market decide. And then you, the only way we have out of this value relativism is to give it, give it up and say, well, let, we, we let the market decide. And the market, again, as a social construct, just like science is a very strong social, effective so, social construct, um, the market is a very, very strong and useful social construct. But just as with science, if we rely too much on science, we go wrong. And the same is with the market. If we rely too much on the market, we go wrong. So I think that the very important step that we are now need that we now need to take as humanity is to say, yeah, we realize that all our narratives and all our ultimate authorities are, are just human constructs. But then realizing that we as humans actually need these constructs. Mm -hmm. We humans are in need of stories and of myths and of foundational myths. So we need to go on an expedition where we try to find the relevant stories or even myths yeah. for the 21st century. Before we, before we go there, 
there is maybe a side insight uh, that I got from reading your book and also hearing you again that I find uh, uh, very revealing because I've seen haven't seen it before, uh, and it becomes very outstanding uh, when you depict it this way. Because usually, uh, when you talk about the political dis cultural discussion right now from the Uh, populist right-wing uh, critique, there's always, always the unification of the market liberals and the cultural liberals, and to put them into one pocket. And usually, being a cultural liberal myself, uh, you, you basically always uh, uh, scream inwardly and outwardly that there has nothing to do with each other. But the way you describe it right now is that there is a direct link between postmodern intellectual thinking of relativism and the rule of the market. So there is a link, there's, there's some truth to the uh, right-wing populist claim that there's a unit between the cultural liberalists and the neoliberalists in, 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 the, in the banks. Uh, just to see that, although... Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, it's an unholy alliance, and I yeah. don't think that any side would want to have this alliance, but Uh, I think it's the fact of what what has uh, mm. what what has happened with with this uh, po postmodern relativism that the market has uh, uh, usurped the, yeah. the the power of authority. Now the reason why I bring this in because uh, I think uh, none of the postmodernists wants to see that. No, and it, it makes more so an argument why there is a need to uh, your question. Yes. All narratives are created, and there's a relativism to it, but that doesn't mean that they're irrelevant. It maybe really leads to the question, and as, as I understand you, that's the transition between postmodernism and metamodernism. Yes, they are created, yes, they're relative, but we have to come to a shared new meta-narrative to hold it all together, knowing that this is created but still something that can hold us together. This transition is important because otherwise we get lost in relativism and also we get stuck with the rule of the market. Is this your argument? No, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I would add, add to that also the, the question of meaning making and the question of meaning crisis that, that again, in postmodernity and in the market, meaning creating is reduced to an individualistic project and pursuit. But, but I think we're starting to realize that that, that that is almost a contradiction in kind. Meaning is created in a, in a social context. And if we can't take responsibility for, for the fact that such, meaning making, such a meaning-making process actually can take place in our society, then we will never come out of the, of the meaning crisis. So many of these things are, are, are all interrelated and it all goes back to the same fact that we need to realize, just like we today, more and more of us, are realizing that we need to take a collective responsibility for the environment. The, the environment will not just take care of itself. We humans need to take care of the environment. In the same way, We, we need to understand that we humans need to take uh, responsibility for our symbolic universe, for our collective imaginaries, for our stories, and for our meta-narratives. They don't just happen uh, by themselves. We, just like we need nature, we need our stories, 
and we need to take responsibility for them. That, that's, the, that's the core message. And it's perhaps easier to understand on a surface level mm-hmm. that we need to take care of this on a surface level. But if you go all the way down, yes, we, we need to go all the way down to the meta-narrative and to the ultimate authority mm-hmm. and to, to things like Like that. Interesting, because if I understand you right, you're saying two things at the same time. First, we have to take a responsibility that we are creating this. But if I understand you right, you also say we have to take responsibility that they are narratives. Yeah. Uh, so we, we create something, and this, this is not a scientific claim that, that, that basically we, we create not a new form of science uh, with, with the truth claim of science. We create stories And, and, and narratives and myths that have a different relationship to truth than science has. But what you're saying is, knowing this, that there are myths, narratives, stories, we have to create them and we have to create them together because otherwise nothing is holding us together. No, ab- ab- absolutely. And, and I think this is quite trivial. I mean, really, um, if, if you look at um, the importance of stories in our society, I, I don't think any... any any uh, thinker w- would deny the, f- the, the, the simple fact that um, w- when it comes to projecting where a cannonball will land, science is an excellent tool. Mm-hmm. But, but when it comes to, for me, trying to understand the meaning with my life, science doesn't have any answers. I need to approach the concept of meaning, my own personal meaning, my meaning in life, but also the purpose of our society, of our community. We need to approach that another way. And, and that way is through, through stories. We create meaning through, through stories so that we can see how important and as a complement to science stories has always been. And of course, that was the strength in the pre-modern uh, worldview where almost everything were stories. And, and then we started to realize that some aspects of, of reality, the natural world, were actually better described not by stories and purpose and telos, like Aristotle tried to explain gravity, why is stone falling down? Because the stone has a purpose. The stone has a telos and the stone's telos is to be low. That, that, that was his tr- attempt to describe physics with uh, narratives. But then, of course, the strength of, of natural science came in. But then we moved completely away from the story's explanation and, and went to the measurable science explanation. And that's where we need to find a balance uh, uh, again. Could I just give one example on, on how we sometimes con- confuse this? going back to um, this insight that we as humans, that we are actually dependent on oxygen. The fact that we need air is not just a story, whereas our dependence on money is a collective story. The, the sad thing here is that it looks like we are sometimes confusing this and thinks it, it is the other way around, that the planetary boundaries is actually something that is up for negotiations. Whereas the market forces is something that we just need to obey. When of course it's just the opposite. So this is very confusing 
to us. Mm -hmm. And it's probably because we as biological creatures are fairly recently created and that we haven't really developed a strong intuitive feelings towards our socially constructed uh, uh, world. We, we, we don't intuitively discern between the natural world and the socially constructed world. And we, we need to really think to do that. Oh, this, this, this was important. I do have to ask the impossible question though. Okay. Uh, uh, you, talk, you talked about the necessity to have one ultimate stat, touchstone yeah. in uh, our social imaginary, the God-given right of the king, science, truth, market. Uh, so when we make the step that you're proposing, uh, do we need also a touchstone like this? Mm. And of course, we, this is premature and this is why it's impossible. But still we have to ask the question, uh, what touchstone are we reaching for? What is inside what can hold together a meta-modern in social imaginary, what would that be uh, as far as, as we can talk about it already? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important that when we are talking about meta-narratives and stories, to believe that we can construct a new meta-narrative, a new story, that, that is very much still modernistic thinking. Uh, we have to realize that this transition that we are in now is so deep that, that it is truly emergent, meaning that we cannot see what's coming on the other side and we cannot plan for this and we cannot even manage it. Uh, what's coming on the other side is probably not a new narrative. It's probably many narratives, many stories. So the narrative on the other side might be an... Uh, a story of the many stories and how the many stories can, can live and thrive uh, together. It might also be a story about how we all as individuals can and must contribute to these stories and, and to this new society. And it might also include the realization that we through interpersonal development can become more and more free to play an active role in that co-creation of the new society. So how can we together co-create a new society that is a society of many stories and enable for as many of us as possible to develop, to be able to play as free and as important role in that process? That, that, that is the, the, the best attempt to some sort of new story that I can come up with uh, like this. No, it's fair enough. Also, uh, uh, just accepting that whatever we say right now has to be tentative by its nature. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, this process is so uh, emergent and so rapidly moving. And, you know, we don't even have a clue what the technological possibilities will be in five or, or ten years. So I believe technology will, will play an enormous role. And it might, not, it might even be that the technology that will have the hugest impact on our human possibilities in 20 years, that technology might not even have been invented yet. So mm -hmm. fantasizing around artificial intelligence or blockchains and things like that might be, 
meaningless, but we will certainly have a society where I hope that both the market and democracy will be around in some format, but I certainly think that they will be uh, have to be completely uh, reinvented from the, the way that they look today. Maybe a similar difficult but more practical question. Uh, uh, how, for us, how to engage in this? In this, you, you're saying it's an emergent transition, and it's also about not one story but many stories. But somehow we have to come together in this. We have to co-create this. Mm -hmm. So as we are, I'm talking us as we're sitting here, our listeners, and also the milieu that we are working in. How to engage in this uh, to allow this emergence to happen? Mm. Yeah. So I, I I think it's a lot both realizing just realizing that we have the possibility to to uh, play a role in this process and that we actually are playing a role all of us in this process whether we are aware of this or not so just that realization of the world we create that, that's a good first step and then a second step would be for us all both for ourselves to try to uh, cultivate those both cognitive and emotional capacities that we need to have to be able to take part of that process. And now not to go into that, but um, we could refer to the conversation we had uh, around Lena's and my book, The Nordic Secret, where we were talking about the importance of many for many of us to reach this very important developmental in a developmental state the stage of maturity that we as human can reach some at some point in our life journey but too many never do uh, of becoming self-authoring meaning that we free ourselves a little bit from the imperative of Uh, the current culture and the, what our peers are, are thinking and doing and starting to be able to take our culture or even our collective imaginary as an object for reflection. You need to be able to do that in order to actually be able to contribute to that. If you haven't come to that developmental stage, then you are very much just part of replicating the society which you are in. So it's also a, a question of how can we as a society help as many individuals as possible to actually de develop the capacities necessary to take part of this process. Mm -hmm. And that is of course what we did in Scandinavia 150 years ago when we really took the German concept of Bildung into Volksbildung and gave this to a substantial part of the, of the population. 10% of each young generation went through six months programs 100 years ago. And I really have to say, both of your books are Nordic Secret in German, uh, the Skandinavische Geheimnis and the world, the, book, the world We Create in German, uh, Die Welt, Die Wir Erschaffen. For me, they are really important insights also to understand the process that we are in and also to understand how we can engage in this process. Mm. So as we are at the end of our time, Thomas, thank you very much for your time and thank you very much also for the work you're doing.
Thank you. Thank you very much.